Hello and welcome to Get Flushed, the world's favourite sanitation podcast. The release date for this episode, 11th of September 2021, marks the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks in the United States. Those events changed the course of modern history and they still continue to reverberate. In the past month, we've seen Allied troops withdraw from Afghanistan, and just last week, a lone jihadist used a knife to attack shoppers in a supermarket here in New Zealand. This episode is dedicated to the memory of all those who've lost their lives as a result of terror attacks. American 11, are you trying to call? The cockpit is not answering their phone. Our number one is in staff, and our five is in staff. I am going to call from Washington. I am in a situation with American 11, a possible hijack. That audio captures the final moments before American Airlines Flight 11 hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46am on Tuesday, 11th of September 2001. It's one of those moments in time where everybody who witnessed it, either first-hand or on TV, can recall exactly where they were when they heard the news. I was at a conference in the UK with colleagues from America. One of them received a text that simply said, turn on the TV. We did, and we all sat there in stunned silence as we watched the horror unfold. In the days, weeks and months that followed, a huge rescue and recovery operation took place at Ground Zero. My friend Dave Andres was the business development manager for Mr John, one of the largest restroom providers in New York. He took a key role in the mission to supply and service restrooms for the first responders and recovery workers. He arrived on scene the next day, Wednesday the 12th of September, and he's agreed to share his story. Dave, good morning. How you doing? I'm good. Very good. I said in the preamble, it's 20 years since the catastrophic events of 9-11. I understand that you were actually there and heavily involved in the provision of services for not only the rescue and recovery, but also the cleanup at Grand Zero afterwards. I think everyone remembers where they were when they heard the news. I was actually on my way from central New Jersey, Princeton area, down to a sewer plant in Camden, New Jersey, to talk about grease disposal. And... As is the case with me many mornings, I'm always on my phone, people are calling, I'm engaged. And I noticed that my wife had called me three times. Finally said, hey, listen, I got to get off this call. My wife's calling me. So I called my wife back and she goes, are you listening to I Miss in the Morning? And that was the morning show in, in central New Jersey in New York. I'm like, no, what happened? And she goes, a plane hit the World Trade Center. I'm like, no way. Of course, I turn on my news source, I'm just in the morning, very famous guy in, in New York, New Jersey. And by the time I get to my appointment, the second plane hit. Obviously, the press didn't know that it was a terrorist attack. We just knew that both towers had been hit. So I go into reception, I check in, and amazingly enough, we went ahead and had our meeting. I don't criticize that. I don't look back on that as a bad thing or whatever. We went in and had our 45-minute meeting. But Dave, people didn't know what had happened, did they? No, I mean, it was a crisis. We knew that the fire was responding, police were responding, but no one really knew the magnitude of the disaster that had just happened. If I just unwind a little bit from there, Dave, at the time you were working for Mr. John in New York. 
Yeah, I started at Mr. John April Fool's Day in 1997 in New York. I was the vice president of business development, head of sales and marketing. What's ironic about this whole story is we moved to New Jersey in 1990, February of 1990, after graduating college. And not once, not once did I ever go to Lower Manhattan and the World Trade Centers. Even though you live there. I mean, my sales story wasn't Lower Manhattan. We had a service truck at the base of the World Trade Center servicing four new concepts at like 7.30 a.m. on the GPS. And he had gotten up and out of there. So we had nobody impacted from Mr. John service-wise. But I then was at the World Trade Center from September 12th daily for the next year and a half. What happened was I finished the meeting. We go to the executive director's office. One of the towers was down and I had to excuse myself. I said, I I have to go. As I'm driving back north, Mitch says, we just got a request for a thousand portable toilets. Johnny on the spot, our biggest competitor, only had 40. So we ended up immediately getting a contract for those toilets to deliver them immediately. Where did that request come from, Dave? Was it from the emergency services on the ground? It was OEM, the Offices of Emergency Management, which is under the mayor, Giuliani at the time. And of course, Mr. John was a well-established union operation, had all the permits, had everything. was We were very well known. They sent the message to everyone. But we were the only one that could say we could deliver a thousand. That in itself is something else because not many restroom operators keep that much stock on hand in case of emergency, do they? It's just not done. I may be a weird bird and, you know, I'm not right for everybody. But when I got to Mr. John, I asked Mitch Wiener and Gary Wiener, how many do you have in the float? And they're like, what's the float? I said, the float is what we can fulfill every weekend with special events. It's the spare units you have. At the time that I asked the question, my sales team was already selling 400, 500, 600 a weekend. And I said, Mitch, we need a thousand. He goes, a thousand? What are we going to do with a thousand? I said, well, Mitch, we're selling four, five, six hundred a weekend. We're going to open two more branches if you put 300, 300, 300 or whatever it is. So he said, okay. So he bought a thousand. And ironically, there's many large events in every portable restaurant operators area. And there was the Susan G. Coleman breast cancer walk from Bear Mountain to Manhattan, which is a four-day walk, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it has three camps where the walkers camp out. And it had always been a 900-toilet event that three or four operators, including Mr. John, participated in. And when we finally had 1,000, I walked into them with the account executive, the salesperson, and we secured a three-year contract for all 900 just from Mr. John. They were happy with that. We did great service, great delivery. Those 900 were deployed. And then Tuesday, the planes hit the towers. And of course, the breast cancer walk was canceled. And that's what enabled us to be able to say yes. So it was a case of getting the team out to pick them up from the ground where they'd been deployed and then re-deliver them to Ground Zero. We could move 128 at any given time with our trucks and equipment. We got a call that said, the sheriff is going to meet you at your yard Wednesday, September 12th, and they're going to escort you to ground zero. I was in the lead truck. David Dam was the driver. I didn't have my CDL. I was the passenger. I was in the lead truck of 128, meaning truck after truck after truck after truck. And we got escorted from Keysby, New Jersey, out through Staten Island, up to BQE, over the Brooklyn Bridge down to lower Manhattan 
and we started slinging toilets. Mitch Wiener, Dave Dam, all my sales team, obviously normal standard delivery drivers and everything else. And we deployed 750 toilets in two days and put them on daily service. Dave, it must have been absolute pandemonium. I mean, everyone's seen the footage of the towers coming down. There must have been debris everywhere. How on earth did you find a a suitable location to deploy that many toilets? Because the footprint just of that many toilets is insane, isn't it? Ironically and amazingly, the World Trade Centers collapsed in on themselves within a very, very small footprint. So a block or two away, there was open area that you could line up 100 toilets. And we just did that in groups of, I don't know, 80, 100, 120, whatever was available. There's a couple of churches around the World Trade Center that have graveyards with gravestones from the 17 and 1800s untouched. I mean, there was debris and paper and a lot of dust, but nothing else really other than the Deutsche Bank building which was right next to the World Trade Center, was impacted such that it had to be torn down. So what happened was, is they set up credentials, basically, that you could come in. And there were phases of the cleanup that they changed the credentials. So when all the asbestos people came in, there was credentials. And then when all the other people came in, there was different credentials. And I said, guys, you're holding us up. We need a credential that is the toilet guy. I had a vehicle pass to get wherever I needed to go. And to New York City's credit and the police department's credit, they had very, very tight security. One of the things that I enjoyed in my life and career is cigars, right? So I had boxes of Padron cigars with me because I learned very quickly that when I came to the next checkpoint and I would be smoking a cigar the police officer who was being Caesar and not letting me through would see the cigar. I'm like, Hey, you want a cigar? And so I would hand out cigars like left and right. I actually became known a little bit for that. But that helped ease your way through the checkpoints and got you to the site. If you have a gift that's meaningful to somebody else, you should give it away. You should pay it forward. Of course I was asking the guy for his bad number because I needed to put it in my daily report that he was obstructing the toilet services, which is going to create a toilet emergency, which I then have to report on to somebody else. And of course, you put in that context, but then you're handing the guy a cigar. And then they used to wave at me and ask me to stop, and I would hand him another cigar. So Mr. John and the owners were very, very supportive. They funded all of that. It wasn't like a, a thing I was doing personally. It was a business expense. I had been trying to get Tully Construction. 600 million heavy highway contractor in New York City, Tully Construction, for like three or four years. They were dedicated to call ahead. And I couldn't get them to bite on Mr. John. And Wednesday of the event, so two days in, I'm on the pile. I'm in my gear, mask, hard hat, safety gear. And Denise Savonarola calls me from the office and says, they just ordered an aqua flush. She didn't even say their name. I'm like, who signed the purchase order? Tommy O. And his last name was Lefchek. You couldn't really pronounce it if you saw it. I go into the office and I said, hey, I'm looking for Tommy O. He goes, he's out on the pile. I'm like, okay, thanks. So I go out on the pile. I don't know where he is, but I see three white hats. And a white hat in New York City means that he's like a supervisor. He's like a higher up than, than the other hats. 
So I come up to these three guys. They're having a conversation. They're talking about there's track hoes and all sorts of stuff moving around. And I said, hey, I'm looking for Tommy O. He goes, I'm Tommy O. Who are you? I said, Dave Andres from Mr. John. Thank you for your order. He goes, listen, we're working three shifts here. That's two days late. I said, well, let me call the office and see if they can come right. And he goes, no, 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 no. Just get it here tomorrow morning. I made relationships through that disaster that I still have to this day. And it was truly an amazing humanitarian response. And I believe that every pro in the country that's listening to this is the same way. You're going to have to forgive me because I'm going to drill down into some of the really incidental detail. My experience of disasters is that everybody rushes to the scene and that everybody does everything they possibly can. But at the end of the day, the restroom operator needs to get paid. So how on earth did you manage the purchase order number and the agreement and the contract and all of that side of the business? Because we all do things out of the goodness of our heart, but the bottom line is we're commercial ventures. Well, what's interesting about this is the chairman stepped up and secured all the information, got them all the insurance, got them all the truck numbers. When a disaster happens, I encourage every pro to be ready. If you really want to play ball and be prime, like be right in the middle of it, you need to be prepared and anticipating that you need to shift your normal day-to-day operations. And everyone needs to be all hands on deck. There are no excuses. We get what's needed and we work with whoever we need to work with to make it happen. That leads nicely into my next set of questions, Dave, which are all about the business as usual. So what happened at Mr. John with your normal daily jobs that you were servicing? And and I know Mr. John was a big operation, so you had a lot of daily customers who weren't affected directly by 9-11 and still required service, but you've only got a finite number of trucks and drivers. So how on earth did you manage that huge uplift in daily workload? I mean, it must have been phenomenal, Dave. Everyone at Mr. John stepped up. If you do the math, whatever 750 is times seven, that's what we increased our weekly service like instantaneously. Now, part of the other thing that I did at Mr. John, which I'm very proud of, is I asked him where the playbook was. And I ended up being responsible for the idea and the initiation of writing a playbook on how we did the business. I mean, from answering every phone call, taking every order, cleaning every toilet, because Mr. John wanted to grow. So when I say at the time, Pat West, who runs ChemCan Services in Dallas-Fort Worth right now, he was our satellite salesman. And Mr. John had been satellite since the beginning. We bought a thousand tough ways a summer for seven straight summers. That meant they wanted to grow the business so they're ready to support it. I was the third outside salesperson when I got there April 1st of 1997. And when I left nine years later, there was 26 total sales team inside sales, outside sales, sales management, and we were doing 45 million up from 8 million. If you want to grow, you need to have a deep bench. You need to have extra equipment. You need to have surplus inventory. And I know right now the labor market is very tough, but if you're really going to grow a business, you need to think in terms of how to grow your bench and find people inside your culture to stand and deliver no matter what it is. We had the constant tension of operations couldn't fulfill the deliveries and the service because we were growing so much. The routes were getting messed up. We just didn't have the drivers. So I went to Gary Wiener, the president. Gary, would you fund and support 
my account executives getting their CDLs so they can drive those trucks that are available? He goes, sure. I ended up having 13 account executives, like outside salespeople, that got their CDL so that when operation says we don't have enough men, we said, no problem. Steve will do it. Fred will do it. Joe will do it. I have a lot of admiration and respect my entire career for Ron Inman at Honey Buckets. And one of the things that Honey Buckets can attribute their success to is everybody at Honey Buckets can run a route, which means when the route driver is out, he knows his teammates are going to support and get the route done. We did all of our standard routes and we added all those additional ones at the World Trade Center. And we put two men in the truck. There was like three trucks. And those because we had surplus trucks. And the helpers were guys who wanted to become drivers. How did Mr. John manage the drivers who were going into that site every day? Because it must have been hugely traumatic. You know, I was in Christchurch the day the big earthquake went and all the buildings fell down and we lost 150 people. But that was nothing compared to the scale of the World Trade Center. And just seeing that destruction visually takes a big toll on people. You know, it's hard to comprehend and it's hard to get your head around. However must those drivers have felt driving into the heart of that every day? And I'm guessing they would have had interactions, conversations with the workers on the ground who were actually retrieving the poor, unfortunate victims and just trying to salvage whatever was there. I mean, how on earth do you cope with that, Dave? So you bring up a very good question, and I am really proud to say that the owners of Mr. John and the kind of culture that I helped develop was all about looking out for everyone on the team to make sure they felt comfortable with what they were doing. They had support, training. They had what they needed. My sales team, when there was a big job going on, would be known for knowing every worker on the job and what kind of Gatorade he liked and what kind of sandwich he liked. And they would show up with lunch and Gatorade. So what we did is that same culture of paying attention, giving them what they needed, and then giving them respect. We had three times a week dinners at the local Italian restaurant to go over everything after the end of the day. We all put in the extra mile. And I will tell you that when you do a disaster and you get in theater, there is something that's invigorating to help. If you go back and interview those drivers, they would all say, we were proud to be a part of helping the recovery effort. And there would have been a real camaraderie between the team members because you're all working in very tough conditions. One of the things I want to go back into is that your service guys go in there every day to service those 700 units. That's not their full job, though, is it? Because they've then got to dispose of the waste. So what systems and mechanisms were put in place and where did you actually go to discharge the septic waste you've recovered from those toilets? Well, here comes a big secret that most people don't know and realize, but I'll share it because it's public knowledge. New York City, all five boroughs, has free toilet waste disposal in certain locations. So toilet waste was not the problem. You can't run two guys seven days a week, every week. You have to run them a certain number of hours. So we ended up needing to have additional teams that went in in the same trucks and did the same thing because it was seven days a week for like over a year. But disposal was not our problem. Looking back, I don't believe anybody has told the story of the sanitation response at 9-11. And it's good that we're able to have this conversation because 
so many future lessons were learned then. And I hope this is helpful. It's not meant to be proud or, look, you know, look what I did. We did it as a team. We're not being sensational, Dave. It's a legitimate story to tell. I've got friends in police departments over in the US and they've told me that the restrooms actually provided a private space for those emergency services workers to just have a moment to collect themselves when they're working in incredibly difficult conditions. Pete, it's amazing that you just shared that feedback you got through your channels with the New York City Police Department because one of the most meaningful things... We delivered these toilets, and we would watch firemen and police officers and Port Authority people go into them and not come out, like well beyond the time you need to go to the bathroom. And we then discovered that they were so thankful for a place that was clean, dust-free, alone, and they could just decompress. I think that the sanitation response to every disaster that's ever happened, if you say you clean a good toilet, keep cleaning a good toilet because that's what people need for their dignity. They need a good, clean space, either to be alone, do their business. I think you're absolutely right, Dave. It's amazing that a guy 20 years later that I've known now for two or three years brought up the punchline to something that I've shared with people. I just didn't know they understood it or not. The PSEI Nuts and Bolts Conference was that November in New Jersey. And Mr. John was one of the locations people got to come and tour. I was able to schedule two 12-person golf carts where people from the PSEI were able to come and go onto the World Trade Center ground. And I remember Todd Hildy telling me it was one of the most impactful experiences of his entire career. And Todd Hildes was satellite. I'm sure. I mean, people are like, how did you do that? And it's because we made promises and we kept them. We responded immediately. I'll never forget. It was a Friday afternoon. I was down on the pile. And I get a call from OEM saying, listen, we have a victim assistance centers that we need to set up to be open Monday morning up at this bank up by City Hall. We need you up there because we need restroom trailers. I said, no problem. We'll be right there. And we drove from lower Manhattan to City Hall on gators, literally on gators. And we showed up and it was this old abandoned bank that had like two bathrooms from the 1940s. And they wanted to set up a victim assistance center with a restroom trailer outside that had to be winterized and covered and all that sort of stuff. As I'm driving up to the meeting, I call all my supply people. Sagru contracting, a couple other people. And sure enough, they all jumped on their gators and they showed up at the meeting. And sure enough, Monday morning, the new mayor, Bloomberg at the time, was able to open the Victim Assistance Center. They set up a food tent, a $14 million food tent, and we put six restroom trailers inside the food tent. Just the sheer logistics, because I imagine there were thousands and thousands of workers involved in that recovery operation. And it went on for a long time. A long time. And then, of course, there's restoring the equilibrium of the site and then the future build. So the, the sanitation provision would have gone for a really long time. Yeah. So it's incredible, really, that you were involved from day one. I mean, it's just an unprecedented global event. And what's amazing is you have to be ready for any call at any time. You never know what the next call is going to be. So I got a call to go to a parking lot behind the Verizon building. 
And in this parking lot, they were storing like the UPS truck that got struck. And you could see everyone's packages in it. But that parking lot, which was parking cars, got taken over for the Verizon support with Segru Contracting, where we ended up delivering three restroom trailers, 14 holding tanks, a bunch of plastics. And this just went on and on and on. Uh, I'll never forget when I was asked to deliver a thousand gallon water tank to the office up on the Staten Island landfill. Right. So it was like the first order up on the Staten Island landfill. So I went with the driver. And we filled it with 1,000 gallons of water, and I went in the trailer that had requested it. And inside that trailer were the recognizable remains of files. I'll never forget, on a table as I walk in, there is a woman's foot inside of a high heel. There were watches. There were wallets. There were legal files. And it was everything that they could recover to try to identify who and what and wherefore. That's very sobering and very tough to live with. Most people aren't used to seeing that. If you've got an emergency services background, then you, you see things like that. But most members of the public, and certainly most sanitation drivers, would never expect to be involved in anything as horrific as that. It's an unprecedented, uncomparable situation. But the lessons learned, and hopefully that's what this podcast will encourage every pro listening everywhere in the world is that you can do the same thing. I'm not unique. I'm not special. You all have it in you to respond based upon your preparation, based upon your supply chain, based upon your extra services. And and I'm not suggesting you disrupt your normal flow. I refer to both and versus either or. You need to imagine yourself doing both and. And in order to do that, you need a company culture, you need some spare equipment. And then if you don't have spare equipment, you need to reach out to your other competitors. We let Jess Thompson at Johnny on the Spot put out all of his toilet. We didn't block him because he only had 40. We were big into collaboration. Now, we did own the site until even today for the reconstruction. Mr. John has been the primary provider at at the World Trade Center ever since. All the new buildings were all done with Mr. John. The one thing I want to tell you is I came on as a new energetic employee in 1997. This happened four years later. And of course, I'd been sort of beating the drum that things are going to happen. We're going to grow. We're going to get bigger. And then when this happened and we all delivered, it really solidified the message that I had been promoting all along. And after that, we just kept growing. What's interesting is when Katrina happened, which was a huge hurricane, massive hurricane, we ended up being able to deploy 12 of our service trucks. And at the time we had six branches. So two from each branch is what it came down to. It wasn't 12 out of the one branch, but we sent 12 service trucks three 5,000s and two jetbacks down to New Orleans, Biloxi. We set up a camp. We had a project manager. We set it up and we supported the United States Services. Rollin Kay and the United States Services had the prime contract. And we worked down there for two or three months supporting them to get the work done. And at the same time, during that event, Rich Vector came down from service sanitation and Tom Stang came down from CNL sanitation Two dear friends of mine in the industry, many people listening know Rich Vector's name, 
They know Tom Stang's name. But those guys responded as well. And we just all collaborated to support United States Services in fulfilling the FEMA contract. We'll maybe talk about that collaboration in the follow-up episode, Dave, because I think we can come back and pull out some of the really big lessons. You know what it does? You know what it does, Pete? is it shows whether or not your ego dominates your business. And if it does, you will not be participating in what I just described. If you don't have an ego and you truly care and you're truly willing to collaborate, you'll be part of one of the stories that I'm talking about. Yeah, we're talking about it 20 years later and and it's a, a valid story to tell. I know we're going to come back to it next week and talk about ways that restroom operators can gear their businesses to respond when large-scale disasters occur. But is there anything else that you want to add about the history of 20 years ago when those planes hit the World Trade Center? No, I just feel like an old man because it's 20 years ago. <laughs> but it's as vivid of a remembrance as me. And, and I can't thank you enough, Pete, for asking me to tell this story. And what I would say to your audience whoever's listening, if they found this valuable, if you want help, if you want to discuss this, I'm available anytime. Just call me. I care deeply about the industry. And I also care deeply about sharing and helping people go figure out how to do it themselves. So hopefully this has resonated with a few people. I know Ryan Granger was one of your early season one people. I had him on my uh, follow your process video podcast and I helped him when the disaster came to respond. Well, I spoke to Ryan yesterday because I just checked in with him to see if he'd been involved in Hurricane Ida and he said it was far enough away that they weren't affected. Yeah. Hopefully I'll be able to catch up with Ryan in a couple of weeks' time and we were going to do it at the end of last season, but he landed a really big contract, 40 restrooms for a big construction project, so he's... (laughs) He's been rushed off his feet. Good. He was collecting them from site over the last week or so, so hopefully he'll have a little bit more free time now. Good for him. Good for him. You raise a really good point there, Dave, which is about talking about your feelings and your state of mind when you've been involved in something like this. It would be really easy to think that restroom operators are immune. Good that you raise the point that if people need to talk, then they can talk, and I'd extend that openly. It's interesting because COVID has done this as well, right? So temporary sanitation, portable toilets has been a first responder. I don't think it's gotten the recognition that it needs. But I would tell you that the portable sanitation industry and people are a sturdy bunch. They actually are people that enjoy going out and responding to crisis situations. And of course, we need to be sensitive to everyone and how they're impacted. And that really comes down to the owner of the portable restroom operation to make sure they're being sensitive. But I think most of them are like most of them have great teams that are ready to jump through hoops to make stuff happen. I think of Nancy Gump at Andy Gump. I think of Ross Ambrose at AAA. Uh, I think of service sanitation up in Chicago. I think of Tammy Orskovich at Arnold. I think, of course, of Ron Inman at Honeybuckets and his entire team. I think of Paul and Noble Carl at Texas Outhouse. All these people are examples. They're ready to stand and deliver. And they do on a regular basis without any fanfare and without any recognition. And if I look back, I'm really proud of being a part of the Mr. John team and having the opportunity to respond to something. But I don't want any credit. It's just what we do. It just is what it is. And if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it. So we did it. Has it impacted my career? Has it impacted my reputation? Of course. But it just means I'm now more capable of also helping others do something similar that's already inside of them. They just might not know it. 
And that's what I love about the Get Flood podcast is because that's what you're doing to portable sanitation people around the globe. You're just sharing information. You're sharing confidence. You know, you got new ideas. And uh, one day you and I should write a playbook and we can offer it all up. That's the plan. I'm really grateful you've come on to share it. You mentioned Ross Ambrose there, and I'm going to use this as an opportunity to get the plug in. I know that you're going to Hulaween up in Live Oak with Ross at the end of October. And as I said in last week's show, he's actually looking for workers to give him a helping hand at that event. So is there anything you can say to encourage people to uh, get in touch and apply to be part of that adventure? Well, full disclosure, I am the representative in America for Sanitrax International, the freshwater flushing vacuum toilets that you hear about because we sponsor this podcast uh, and really appreciate your generosity in letting us do that. But I offer a demo kit, which is 57 toilet seats, which is 19 modules, and a tech unit to any portable restroom operator in America to try this new thing called freshwater flushing vacuum sanitation. And Ross Ambrose took me up on it for Halloween. And so I personally will be there. We'll be operating Sanitrax. And yes, Ross needs more people to come experience a festival, which is a great experience. And so if you have an inkling, you can come meet me there. You can be there. And you can see Sanitrax and you can see everything else. And you can contribute to helping a guy. Everyone has staffing problems right now. So, so it's a great opportunity. And if you're thinking about dabbling in the business, thinking about starting a portable restroom business, Call Ross Ambrose up and volunteer to come down and spend two or three, four days. And I think it will really impact you immensely to help you make the decisions you need to make to start your own company or just come down and have a good time at a Halloween festival in Florida in October. Even if portable restroom operators haven't been involved in events, but they're thinking about could they add events to their portfolio, this would be a great opportunity to come and learn some of the skills that are involved and see how an operation like this unfolds and earn some money at the same time as well as having some great fun. And I'm only sorry that the COVID regulations in New Zealand mean that I can't get there because I I can't get back home again afterwards. No, I understand. And the other hidden advantage is you can hang out with me and ask me all the questions for free. I'll answer every question you got just because you showed up. Well, I'm laughing, but you know that's a gift in itself, Dave. There's an immeasurable amount of tacit knowledge that you've got to share, and I know that you and Ross would share that freely with anybody who goes along to help out at Halloween. I'm an open book. I'm happy to do it, and I appreciate you, Pete, you know, having me on the show. That's great. I won't take up any more of your time this week, Dave, but I will be back on the phone next week to do that follow-up episode where we look at how PROs can prepare themselves best for disaster response. So thank you, my friend. It's been a pleasure as always, and I'll talk to you again soon. Very good. Thanks, Pete. Thanks. I really appreciate Dave taking time to share that story with me and I know that he'll join me in acknowledging all the great work done by everybody involved in the provision of sanitation services during the rescue and recovery operation at Ground Zero. If any listeners are affected by today's episode, please seek help. At the very least, contact Dave or myself so that we can point you in the right direction to get support. As Dave pointed out at the end, Ross Ambrose and the team at PortaServe are still looking for help at the Halloween Festival over the last weekend of October. These are paid roles and there's food and accommodation provided. Just visit portaserve.com and use the contact form to get in touch with Ross if you're interested in taking part. 
I've got a little bit of admin to do before I close this episode. I've been consolidating domain names to make sure that everything get flushed points to the show and listeners may have experienced some disruption to our main page while those changes took effect this week. Hopefully everything has settled down and all 60 episodes to date should now be available once more. Please remember to visit our Patreon page if you'd like to support the show and don't hesitate to get in touch if you'd like to advertise or sponsor an episode of Get Flushed. Dave will be back next week as we work through some of the lessons we've both learnt from disasters and we'll talk about the steps that restroom operators can take to prepare their business so that they can best respond when emergencies occur. Once again, thank you for your time. I've been Pete and you've been listening to Get Flushed, the world's favourite sanitation podcast. (laughs) 